supported by SAF Markets. SAF Markets provides comprehensive analysis and commentary on foreign exchange and asset markets. A multi-asset approach incorporating FX, fixed income, equity, and commodity markets. As nothing is permanent, we strive to get ahead of the curve in an ever-changing world. SAF Markets, getting ahead of the curve. Hello, and welcome to In Conversation with Sham Devani, where every so often I will engage in a dialogue with experienced market professionals. My guest today is Sunil Kalara, who brings nearly 25 years of experience in trading markets. Sunil started off in Mumbai, making markets and interest rates in foreign exchange, before heading a team of global macro sales at Citibank in Singapore, and then also heading the Emerging Markets FX trading team across the Asia-Pacific markets. Throughout all his years in management, there was not one single negative year for his team's PL. More recently, Sunil founded and now runs LC Beacon Global Fund, which has been the winner of several awards in this category, particularly because of its consistency. Sunil's familiarity with trading a wide range of financial markets across multiple horizons allows him to engage in almost any conversation related to asset markets, foreign exchange, policy, and underlying economic trends. Thanks, Sunil, for uh, joining me. It's always a pleasure talking to you because every time I do, I'm always left either learning something or scratching my head because you've said or come across something that's a lot more intelligent thorough than the way I've been looking at markets. So uh, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me and for the kind words, Sean. So I've got to ask you fairly broadly, what's amazed you most about markets so far this year? Um, and what in your mind is clear at this juncture as we've started the second half? Well, the one thing which has amazed me is the response time of the central bank's and how quickly markets have reacted. I think this uh, playbook has happened in past crises where uh, a big problem happens in financial markets, central banks react, and then markets come back to some kind of normalcy. I think what has been very different about this episode is the speed of uh, response and the speed of retracement of markets. I think the second thing which amazes me is the absolutely... Um, you know, very clear commitment to asset prices. You know, it is very clear that, you know, asset prices now hold more importance for a lot of at least the developed market central banks than any other measure of economic performance. So we keep talking about unemployment and inflation, but I think, you know, at some point of time, this needs to be etched in officially into into central bank policies that maintaining asset prices high is an integral part of their job description. Well, you see now, of course, people in the market will say things like that. And we've, we've watched markets for many years. And when they start rattling, the, the central banks uh, react and respond. Very often, it seems like a reaction rather than a response. Of course, central banks would say something very different, wouldn't they? They would say, well, look, markets are moving because of the economy. And we're responding to the economy and markets and asset prices are, are simply a byproduct of all this. 
yes and no. Uh, if that was the sole reason for central bank policy action, then you know bailouts of financial assets won't happen. Uh, you know, I can understand trying to protect bank depositors and small bank depositors and small investors, but why would you bail out institutional investors by buying all kinds of junk bonds at ridiculous prices? That doesn't gel with economic growth. The same companies whose bonds you buy back continue to fire people. So it's not that buying their bonds has stopped them from firing people and reducing headcount. So it's not really having an impact on the economy from that perspective. The only thing it does is prop up the asset price. So I don't agree with that. Yeah. Uh, with that pre- premise, some of the actions which have been taken uh, have no direct impact on the economy. Let's let's be clear. This sounds more like the Federal Reserve we're talking about. Yes, I mean they've been the pioneers in in this, but even the ECB has been buying all kinds of instruments which would have been priced very differently if it was a free market. And I I'm not a fan of absolutely free markets. I think central banks need to come in and smoothen volatility. I think it's an integral part of keeping a stable financial system. But I think now we are going beyond keeping stability to keeping prices high. I mean, one of the tenets of capitalism is that bad companies go down and good companies thrive. Now, that's obviously gone out of the window. And um, you buy a lot of things just because there is a backstop and for no other reason. This this one-way traffic and, and one-way... Activity cannot last forever. Nothing is permanent. This, this, it sounds like this troubles you somewhat, the way things are, have evolved, the way things have just turned out. I think it would trouble most people who, who have been practicing financial markets. I, I don't think there's anyone who would not see something wrong with it. The only uh, difference here is that you, know, you necessarily can't trade on this because uh, it's very easy to let your bearishness get ahead of uh, the timing of bearishness and you can lose a lot of money trying to bet against inherently flawed fundamental valuations. So I think there is a long-term view and there is uh, a view on how the market is going to react. Now, how the market will react can be sometimes very different from the fundamentals. And I think as someone trading financial markets and managing portfolios, it's extremely important to segregate the two. So while I might have my views on whether this is sustainable or not sustainable, at the same time, it's very difficult to time when things will go wrong. This is not about a few months or a few quarters. Such things could continue for for years before they unravel and could be for decades as well. Who knows? Because there is no mark-to-market on central bank books. The point I'm trying to make is it's you have to segregate your view on the sustainability of a policy versus you're trying to get bearish because you feel that the view is not sustainable because uh, markets could go up 30% before they turn down even from here. Who knows? So yeah. all I'm saying is trading and portfolio management is slightly different from a long-term uh, view on what's right and what's not. Now, as far as markets go, probably slightly closer to the, to the ground, a little bit more short term. What's the m- most troubling part of the, the, the current environment? I mean, you, you talked a lot about policy already um, and, and how some of these things can go into the long term. But if you stick to 2020 or 2021, is it the risk of second secondary virus cases that get out of hand? Or is it that you feel that the underlying economies may not be productive enough to justify uh, some of the market re- reactions that we've seen? I think uh, most governments have uh, made it very clear that there's going to be no full stop to the economy, even if a second wave happens. So there would be phased slowdowns and lockdowns and going back to earlier restrictions. But I don't think anyone has the will anymore 
uh, or the economies can sustain another full lockdown in any form or shape that realization has happened and the, at the end of the day it was always going to be a trade off of health versus economy and initially governments reacted by focusing on the health aspect and i think that balance has definitely shifted now in in favor of uh, a more balanced view that there will be a few people who get get the virus there will be a few more casualties but at the same time you can't completely shut down the economy because that has ramifications for uh, society in a very different way so i think that balance will be maintained now and that balance will be very different from the balance which happened when the first wave happened so that's the first part the second part is that what this uh, virus has done is effectively just hasten the process of what was happening in the economy anyway over the last few years you've seen a huge move towards almost creation of monopolies you know technology is and will continue to play a big part and old school uh, and old economy uh, sectors and companies which were struggling are struggling even more so what this unfortunate pandemic has done is just hastened the process of even more concentration of wealth and when i say wealth i don't mean it from a socialistic perspective i just mean that the big companies will get bigger the smaller companies do not have the cash to fight these kind of environments and to invest to compete with the big boys and uh, i think it's safe to say that antitrust and uh, monop- anti monopoly regulations are not as stringent as they used to be earlier so it's relatively okay for people to acquire uh, you know almost the only competitor in the world and become a monopoly it's happened in a lot of cases and will continue to happen so the point i'm trying to make is that the hastening of the demise of smaller companies will probably accelerate there will be deep holes in balance sheets of individuals and corporates and obviously government uh, for the individuals uh, the implication is social unrest for the corporates the implication is bankruptcy and for the governments their fiscals have gone and will continue to go for an absolute toss i don't think we have seen the worst of uh, layoffs yet what has happened is that in a lot of countries uh, governments have been either morally or through payments keeping or trying to make sure that corporates keep employees on their rolls and the fact that corporate balance sheets have lost 6 months of revenue and have deep holes and they need to fill those holes somehow will force them to cut costs and uh, whether we like it or not one of the biggest ways to cut costs right now is retrench people which will have a further knockdown effect on personal incomes um, and uh, hence i i see that individual and average household and the average corporate has seen a big deterioration in their balance sheet and that is likely to accelerate so unless the governments are happy to blow bigger fiscal holes in trying to effectively in trying to increase the concept of universal basic income i think we continue to see stresses on on uh, on individual accounts so i think bankruptcies are going to go through the roof uh, especially in the small and mid sized companies Mm. and uh, that's going to have an impact on uh, on retrenchment and employment and that's definitely going to have an impact on banks and if uh, and if we fast forward a little bit and uh, start to unravel some of the government deficits and how they play into markets that brings uh, foreign exchange markets back into action does it not 
Absolutely. I think the biggest question in everyone's mind right now is the ability of the US dollar to uh, keep its pole position as reserve currency and as the outperformer over the last few years, maybe even a decade. We've already seen uh, enough expression of views about how it's going to lose its dominant status and how other parts of the world will outperform now, considering the US hasn't been able to deal with the pandemic as effectively as yeah. uh, some other parts of the world. I think the balance, the balance of risks is always tilted now to a weaker dollar. But for me, the biggest reason for that is the loss of carry support. You know, you are making 2% on your dollar every year and over a five-year period, it was a 10, 10% buffer on your on your holdings and that buffer is gone now. So the fact that the US dollar is now on par with pretty much all the developed world and a lot of parts of the better EM world in terms of interest rates basically means that one of the biggest pillars of support of the dollar is gone. Yeah, you mentioned um, earlier that there were some trends that were already taking place before the COVID-19. And and some people would argue that one of those trends was, you know, the rise of the East. And and I think to some people, at least this pandemic has, one thing that's unraveled is is an East-West divide. I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but I do want to get some of your thoughts on Asia um, and Asia's prospects, whether... They're on China, India, Indonesia, to, to name the big countries or any other that, that interest you. I think at this point of time, there is definitely a North Asia outperformance story. I don't think we can count Asia as one big block because I think the rest of Asia is actually struggling. So if you look at South Asia, for example, and you look at India and Indonesia, um, these economies are really struggling. So I don't think there's any element of outperformance at all in these economies. Yeah. Uh, but in North Asia, definitely. I think partly driven by the fact that they managed to control the pandemic. Secondly, their reliance on tech exports and the fact that the technology industry is literally unscathed. In fact, it's got its, some positive headwinds for it because of the pandemic has definitely contributed to some kind of outperformance. Also, politically, um, you know, places like Korea are kind of not so in the middle of the storm when it comes to the US-China spat, unlike, let's say, Taiwan. But having said that, even Taiwan economy is not really got impacted by the spat. You know, their, their performance is pretty much continuing in a very positive way. So yes, there's definitely a North Asia outperformance story. And um, I think the only risk to that story is very protectionist, um, a very protectionist environment which develops where you know, you literally have a big, big decrease in outsourcing per se, where politicians in the West are forced to bring back manufacturing back home. So, you know, uh, that is, in my view, a risk to North Asia. But I don't think that will play out immediately. In fact, right now, I think North Asia benefits from a bit of de-risking of China portfolios as well, where some of the manufacturing will move out of China into some of these places. But I think in the medium term, trends in geopolitics are not annual trends. They are, those trends can typically last for decades. What was a very pro-globalization world for many, many decades is now turning into a less pro-globalization world. And I do not think a Trump loss in the elections is going to change that underlying philosophy. And that underlying philosophy will not change simply because of inequalities which are huge in the developed markets as well. And there will be enough politicians trying to basically uh, exploit those uh, inequalities and pitch to 
the segment of population which has got left behind by globalization. So I don't see how that big theme is going to change over the next decade or two. So I think anti-globalization will stay in some form or shape. Give me top three trades, any horizon, any market. My strongest conviction trade stays uh, long gold and I would allocate the highest amount of capital to it amongst any other potentially good trades. And the simple reason for that is, you know, people, I mean, to put things into perspective, we are not that much higher on gold where we were from January. You know, a few percent here and there is not really significant in, um, in, in something which actually moves a lot. But if you see how the rest of the world has changed from January, there have been some significant changes. You know, uh, interest rates are pretty much close to flat. So opportunity cost of holding it is gone. Uh, personal balance sheets are in bad shape. Uh, corporate balance sheets have deteriorated. Most on an average, I mean. Of course, there are some companies which will do well and uh, which are doing well and will continue to do very well. Uh, fiscal balance sheets have really gone through the ringer and are likely to deteriorate even more as social inequalities increase and governments dole out money. So from any perspective, you know, from a store of value perspective, I mean, countries are effectively debasing their currencies, whether they want to admit it or not. I mean, uh, if we were in the old system where you needed some kind of underlying assets to print a currency, you couldn't print even half the currency which you're printing right now in a lot of countries. So the point I'm trying to make is if you look at it from any perspective, there's no opportunity loss. There is a store of value. Um, it's basically a, at, at this point of time when you're choosing currencies in the world, you're basically choosing amongst the worst. Uh, it's not a good story in a lot of places. It's just which one is less bad. I would say if you have a 10-year perspective, why would you do anything? Why would you lend money to an investment grade corporate at 0.7, 0.8% per annum? It just doesn't compensate you for the risk at all, considering interest rates are zero. And the only reason you would want to do that over buying gold is because you're hoping that if something goes wrong, some central bank will bail you out. You don't need that central bank bailout for gold. So my personal view is you could see a absolutely crazy move up in gold at some point of time. And before that, I I do give it to everyone who says it's overbought and so on. It might dip 5-10%, but I'm not playing for a 5-10% here. This could be the start of a completely different paradigm in gold. So I would say that's my strongest conviction trade. I'd have to say that I love it when you talk my book. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the second one? So it's very tempting to keep saying, you know, I mean, technology stocks are overvalued and value stocks should come in and all that. I'm not an equity person, so I have no more insight. But what I do believe is that the world will continue to be extremely differentiated over the next five to 10 years. You know, we could buy sectors and we could buy indices, but yes, you know, there could be headwinds in a sector and so on and so forth, but they will always be individual stories. And the one common thing which I think is not going away is the fact that technology will continue to play a big role. So while it's very tempting to fade the NASDAQ because it's all-time high and so on and so forth, I do believe that over the next 10 years, you will see a further consolidation of, of uh, stories. And you know, this is if, if you can find a good stock picker at this point of time, that's probably the most valuable asset. I know people have run down a lot of people for you know being stock pickers because the index just about gives everything. But I think the next 10 years are going to be massive differentiation. And I think uh, technology will continue to play a huge role in everything that happens in the world. The other uh, trades are extremely uh, short term. 
you know, you still want to try and play from the short dollar side at this point of time again, some of the other markets. I think uh, the US election could start getting priced in. And I think uh, in the very short term, it does look like, you know, the euro needs to be bought on every dip. You know, a euro outperformance will probably will probably happen. But I think uh, the one big, big casualty in the next one year or maybe even two years is going to be tourism. And any place which is hugely um, exposed to tourism is going to have a big negative. And the reason I say that is very simple. You know, the next stage, I mean, we're already seeing internal openings up. The next stage is going to be selective international travel, which is going to be very business driven. But if you could do something over a Zoom call, why the hell would you make a trip to your Hong Kong office or or some other regional office? I have no idea why people would do that. And then discretionally, you know, leisure tourism. Even if there is a vaccine by the end of the year and that takes about six months to administer, I think that fear factor is going to stop a lot of people from traveling. So I think when restrictions open, there's going to be a first wave of, oh my God, we haven't traveled, let's go and travel. And that's going to happen. But then reality will sink in on two fronts. One that, you know, uh, household incomes are much weaker than they used to be. And secondly, you know, this this virus is not going away in the next six months. So I think anything linked to tourism uh, and any economy which has a high exposure to tourism is likely a fade uh, on any strength compared to others who are either more domestic or are more export driven, especially if the exports are technology and uh, pharma related. Brilliant. Sunil, thank you very much for joining me. It was great to have you. Thank you, Sham, for having me.